Section seven of Beacon Lights of History, Volume seven, Great Women by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Saint Teresa, Part two. Again was she removed to some place for cure, for her case was desperate, and here her patience was supernal. Yet patience under bodily torments did not give the sought-for peace. It happened that a learned ecclesiastic of noble family lived in this place, and she sought relief in confessions to him. With a rare judgment and sense, and perhaps pride and delicacy, she disliked to confess to ignorant priests. She said that the half-learned did her more harm than good. The learned were probably more lenient to her, and more in sympathy with her, and assured her that those sins were only venial which she had supposed were mortal. But she soon was obliged to give up this confessor, since he began to confess to her, and to confess sins in comparison with which the sins she confessed were venial indeed. He not only told her of his slavery to a bad woman, but confessed a love for Teresa herself, which she of course repelled, though not with the aversion she ought to have felt. It seems that her pious talk was instrumental in effecting his deliverance from a base bondage. He soon after died, and piously, she declared so that she considered it certain that his soul was saved. Teresa remained three months in this place, in most grievous sufferings, for the remedy was worse than the disease. Again her father took her home, since all despaired of her recovery, her nervous system being utterly shattered, and her pains incessant by day and by night. The least touch was a torment. At last she sank into a state of insensibility from sheer exhaustion, so that she was supposed to be dying, even to be dead, and her grave was dug, and the sacrament of extreme unction was administered. She rallied from this prostration, however, and returned to the convent, though in a state of extreme weakness, and so remained for about eight months. For three years she was a cripple, and could move about only on all fours, but she was resigned to the will of God. It was then, amid the maladies of her body, that she found relief to her overburdened soul in prayer. She no longer prayed with a book, mechanically and by rote, but mentally, with earnestness and with the understanding. And she prayed directly to God Almighty, and thereby came, she says, to love Him. And with prayer came new virtues. She now ceases to speak ill of people, and persuades others to cease from all detractions, so that absent people are safe. She speaks of God as her heavenly physician, who alone could cure her. She now desires not sickness to show her patience, but health in order to serve God better. She begins to abominate those forms and ceremonies to which so many were slavishly devoted, and which she regards as superstitious. But she has drawbacks and relapses, and is pulled back by temptations and vanities, so that she is ashamed to approach God with that familiarity which fervent prayer requires. Then she fears hell, which she thinks she deserves. She has not yet reached the placidity of a pardoned soul. Perfection is very slow to be reached, and that is what the Middle Ages required in order to exercise the fears of divine wrath. Not, however, until these fears are exercised can there be the liberty of the gospel or the full triumph of love. Thus for several years Teresa passed a miserable life, since the more she prayed the more she realized her faults, and these she could not correct, because her soul was not a master but a slave. She was drawn two ways, in opposite directions. She made good resolutions, but failed to keep them, and then there was the deluge of tears. 
the feeling that she was the weakest and wickedest of all creatures for nearly twenty years she passed through this tempestuous sea between failings and risings enjoying neither the sweetness of god nor the pleasures of the world but she did not lose the courage of applying herself to mental prayer this fortified her this was her stronghold this united her to god she was persuaded if she persevered in this whatever sin she might commit or whatever temptation might be presented that in the end her lord would bring her safe to the port of salvation so she prayed without ceasing she especially insisted on the importance of mental prayer which is i suppose what is called holy meditation as a sort of treaty of friendship with her lord at last she feels that the lord assists her in his great love and she begins to trust in him she declares that prayer is the gate through which the lord bestows upon her his favors and it is only through this that any comfort comes then she begins to enjoy sermons which once tormented her whether good or bad so long as god is spoken of for she now loves him and she cannot hear too much of him she loves she delights to see her lord's picture since it aids her to see him inwardly and to feel that he is always near which is her constant desire about this time the confessions of st augustine were put into teresa's hands one of the few immortal books which are endeared to the heart of christians this book was a comfort and enlightenment to her she thinking that the lord would forgive her as he did those saints who had been great sinners because he loved them when she meditated on the conversion of st augustine how he heard the voice in the garden it seemed to her that the lord equally spoke to her and thus she was filled with gratitude and joy after this her history is the enumeration of the favors which god gave her and of the joys of prayer which seemed to her to be the very joys of heaven she longs more and more for her divine spouse to whom she is spiritually wedded she pants for him as the heart pants for the water brook she cannot be separated from him neither death nor hell can separate her from his love he is infinitely precious to her he is chief among ten thousand she blesses his holy name in her exceeding joy she cries o lord of my soul o my eternal good in her ecstasy she sings absent from thee my saviour dear i call not life this living here ah lord i my light and living breath take me o take me from this death and burst the bars that sever me from my true life above think how i die thy face to see and cannot live away from thee o my eternal love thus she composes canticles and dries her tears feeling that the love of god does not consist in these but in serving him with fidelity and devotion she is filled with the graces of humility and praises god that she is permitted to speak of things relating to him she is filled also with strength since it is he who strengthens her she is perpetually refreshed since she drinks from a divine fountain she is in a sort of trance of delight from the enjoyment of divine blessings her soul is elevated to rapture she feels that her salvation through grace is assured she no longer has fears of devils or of hell since with an everlasting love she is beloved and her lover is christ she has broken the bondage of the middle ages and she has broken it by prayer she is an emancipated woman and can now afford to devote herself to practical duties she visits the sick she dispenses charities she gives wise counsels for with all her visionary piety she has good sense in the things of the world and is as practical as she is spiritual and transcendental and all this in the midst of visions 
I will not dwell on these visions, the weak point in her religious life, though they are visions of beauty, not of devils, of celestial spirits who came to comfort her, and who filled her soul with joy and peace. A little bird I am, shut from the fields of air, and in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God it pleases thee. She is bathed in the glory of her Lord, and her face shines with the radiance of heaven, with the moral beauty which the greatest of Spanish painters represents on his canvas. And she is beloved by everybody, is universally venerated for her virtues as well as for her spiritual elevation. The greatest ecclesiastical dignitaries come to see her and encourage her and hold converse with her, for her intellectual gifts were as remarkable as her piety. Her conversion, it appears, was charming. Her influence over the highest people was immense. She pleased, she softened, and she elevated all who knew her. She reigned in her convent as Madame de Stal reigned in her salon. She was supposed to have reached perfection, and yet she never claimed perfection, but sadly felt her imperfections and confessed them. She was very fond of the society of learned men, from first to last, but formed no friendships except with those whom she believed to be faithful servants of God. At this period, Teresa meditated the foundation of a new convent of the Carmelite order, to be called St. Joseph, after the name of her patron saint. But here she found great difficulty, as her plans were not generally approved by her superiors or the learned men whom she consulted. They were deemed impracticable, for she insisted that the convent should not be endowed nor be allowed to possess property. In all the monasteries of the Middle Ages, the monks, if individually poor, might be collectively rich, and all the famous monasteries came gradually to be as well endowed as Oxford and Cambridge universities were. This proved in the end an evil, since the monks became lazy and luxurious and proud. They could afford to be idle, and with idleness and luxury came corruption. The austere lives of the founders of these monasteries gave them a reputation for sanctity and learning, and this brought them wealth. Rich people who had no near relatives were almost certain to leave them something in their wills and the richer the monasteries became, the greedier their rulers were. Teresa determined to set a new example. She did not institute any stricter rules. She was emancipated from austerities, but she resolved to make her nuns dependent on the Lord rather than on rich people. Nor was she ambitious of founding a large convent. She thought that thirteen women together were enough. Gradually she brought the provincial of the order over to her views, and also the celebrated friar, Peter of Alcantara, the most eminent ecclesiastic in Spain. But the townspeople of Avila were full of opposition. They said it was better for Teresa to remain where she was, that there was no necessity for another convent, and that it was a very foolish thing. So great was the outcry that the provincial finally withdrew his consent. He also deemed the revenue to be too uncertain. Then the advance of a celebrated Dominican was sought, who took eight days to consider the matter, and was at first inclined to recommend the abandonment of the project, but on further reflection he could see no harm in it, and encouraged it. So a small house was bought, for the nuns must have some shelter over their heads. The provincial changed his opinion again, and now favored the enterprise. It was a small affair, but a great thing to Teresa. Her friend the Dominican wrote letters to Rome, and the provincial offered no further objection. Moreover, she had bright visions of celestial comforters. But the superior of her convent, not wishing the enterprise to succeed, and desiring to get her out of the way, sent Teresa to Toledo to visit and comfort a sick lady of rank, with whom she remained six months. 
here she met many eminent men chiefly ecclesiastics of the dominican and jesuit orders and here she inspired other ladies to follow her example among others a noble nun of her own order who sold all she had and walked to rome barefooted in order to obtain leave to establish a religious house like that proposed by teresa at last there came letters and a brief from rome for the establishment of the convent and teresa was elected prioress in the year fifteen sixty two but the opposition still continued and the most learned and influential were resolved in disestablishing the house the matter at last reached the ears of the king and council and an order came requiring a statement as to how the monastery was to be founded everything was discouraging teresa as usual took refuge in prayer and went to the lord and said this house is not mine it is established for thee and since there is no one to conduct the case do thou undertake it from that time she considered the matter settled nevertheless the opposition continued much to the astonishment of teresa who could not see how a prioress and twelve nuns could be injurious to the city finally opposition so far ceased that it was agreed that the house should be unmolested provided it were endowed on this point however teresa was firm feeling that if she once began to admit revenue the people would not afterwards allow her to refuse it so amid great opposition she at last took up her abode in the convent she had founded and wanted for nothing since alms all unsolicited poured in sufficient for all necessities and the attention of the nuns was given to their duties without anxieties or obstruction in all the dignity of voluntary poverty i look upon this reformation of the carmelite order as very remarkable the nuns did not go around among rich people supplicating their aid as was generally customary for no convent or monastery was ever rich enough in its own opinion still less did they say to rich people ye are the lords and masters of mankind we recognize your greatness and your power deign to give us from your abundance not that we may live comfortably when serving the lord but live in luxury like you and compete with you in the sumptuousness of our banquets and in the costliness of our furniture and our works of art and be your companions and equals in social distinctions and be enrolled with you as leaders of society on the contrary they said we ask nothing from you we do not wish to be rich we prefer poverty we would not be encumbered with useless impediments too much camp equipage while marching to do battle with the forces of the devil christ is our captain he can take care of his own troops he will not let us starve and if we do suffer what of that he suffered for our sake shall we not suffer for his cause the convent of st joseph was founded in fifteen sixty two after teresa had passed twenty-nine years in the convent of the incarnation she died fifteen eighty two at the age of sixty seven after twenty years of successful labors in the convent she had founded revered by everybody the friend of some of the most eminent men in spain including the celebrated borgia ex-duke of candia and general of the jesuits who took the same interest in Teresa that Fenelon did in Madame Guyon. She lived to see established sixteen convents of nuns, all obeying her reformed rule, and most of them founded by her amid great difficulties and opposition. When she founded the Carmelite convent of Toledo, she had only four ducats to begin with. Someone objected to the smallness of the sum, when she replied, Teresa and this money are indeed nothing, but God and Teresa and four ducats can accomplish anything it was amid the fatigues incident to the founding a convent in burgos that she sickened and died it was not however merely from her labors as a reformer and nun that saint teresa won her fame but also for her writings which blaze with genius although chiefly confined to her own religious experience these consist of an account of her own life and various letters and mystic treatises some description of her spiritual conflicts and ecstasies 
others giving accounts of her religious labors in the founding of reformed orders and convents while the most famous is a rapt portrayal of the progress of the soul to the highest heaven her own memoirs remind one of the confessions of st augustine and of the imitation of christ by thomas a kempis people do not read such books in these times to any extent at least in this country but they have ever been highly valued on the continent of europe the biographers of st theresa have been numerous some of them very distinguished like ribera yepez and st marie Bousset, while he condemned madame guillon for the same mystic piety which marked st theresa still bowed down to the authority of the writings of the saint while fleury quotes them with the decrees of the council of trent but st theresa ever was submissive to the authority of the pope and of her spiritual directors she would not have been canonized by gregory the fifteenth had she not been so long as priests and nuns have been submissive to the authority of the church the church has been lenient to their opinions until the reformation there was great practical freedom of opinion in the catholic church nor was the church of the sixteenth century able to see the logical tendency of the mysticism of saint theresa since it was not coupled with rebellion against spiritual despotism it was not until the logical and dogmatic intellect of Bousset discerned the spiritual independence of the jansenists and quietists that persecution began against them had St. Teresa lived a century later, she would probably have shared the fate of Madame Guillon, whom she resembled more closely than any other woman that I have read of, in her social position, in her practical intellect, despite the visions of a dreamy piety, in her passionate love of the Saviour, in her method of prayer, in her spiritual conflicts, in the benevolence which marked all her relations with the world, in the divine charity which breathed through all her words, and in the triumph of love over all the fears inspired by a gloomy theology and a superstitious priesthood both of these eminent women were poets of no ordinary merit both enjoyed the friendship of the most eminent men of their age both craved the society of the learned both were of high birth and beautiful in their youth and fitted to adorn society by their brilliant talk as well as graceful manners both were amiable and sought to please and loved distinction and appreciation both were catholics yet permeated with the spirit of protestantism so far as religion is made a matter between god and the individual soul and marked by internal communion with the deity rather than by outward acts of prescribed forms both had confessors yet both maintained the freedom of their minds and souls and knew of no binding authority but the divine voice which appealed to their conscience and heart and that divine word which is written in the scriptures after the love of god had subdued their hearts we read but little of penances or self-expiations or forms of worship or church ceremonies or priestly rigors or any of the slaveries and formalities which bound ordinary people their piety was mystical sometimes visionary and not always intelligible but deep sincere and lofty of the two women i think saint Teresa was the more remarkable had the most originality madame guillon seems to have borrowed much from her especially in her methods of prayer the influence of st theresa's life and writings has been eminent and marked not only in the catholic but in the protestant church if not direct it has been indirect she had that active ardent nature which sets at defiance a formal piety and became an example to noble women in a more enlightened if less poetic age she was the precursor of madame de chantal of a francis de salet of a mere angelique the learned and saintly port royalists in many respects were her disciples we even see a resemblance to her spiritual exercises in the thoughts of pascal we see her mystical love of the saviour in the poetry of cowper and watts and wesley the same sentiments she uttered appear even in the devotional works of jeremy taylor and jonathan edwards 
the protestant theology of the last century was in harmony with hers in its essential features in the pilgrim's progress of bunyan we have no more graphic pictures of the sense of sin the justice of its punishment and the power by which it is broken than are to be found in the writings of this saintly woman in no protestant hymnals do we find a warmer desire for a spiritual union with the author of our salvation in none do we see the aspiring soul seeking to climb to the regions of eternal love more than in her exultant melodies for uncreated charms i burn opposed by slavish fears no more for one in whom i may discern e'en when he frowns a sweetness i adore that remarkable work of fenelon in which he defends madame guion called maxims of the saints would equally apply to saint teresa in fact to all those who have been distinguished for an inward life from saint augustine to richard baxter for unselfish love resignation to the divine will self-renunciation meditation too deep for words and union with christ as represented by the figure of the bride and bridegroom this is christianity as it has appeared in all ages both among catholic and protestant saints it may seem to some visionary to others unreasonable and to others again repulsive but this has been the life and joy of those whom the church has honored and commended it has raised them above the despair of paganism and the superstitions of the middle ages it is the love which casteth out fear producing in the harassed soul repose and rest amid the doubts and disappointments of life it is not inspired by duty it does not rest on philanthropy it is not the religion of humanity it is a gift bestowed by the father of lights and will be to remotest ages the most precious boon which he bestows on those who seek his guidance authorities v de saint therese escrite par amm lettres de saint therese les ouvrages de saint therese biographie universelle fraser's magazine volume sixty five fifty nine butler's lives of the saints digby's ages of faith the catholic histories of the church especially fleury's maxims of the saints lives of saint teresa by ribera yepez and sainte marie end of section seven